saints. Turn with me, if you would, to Judges chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 17 today as we continue in the storyline of Gideon delivering God's people from the hand of the Midianites. While you're turning there, um, I want you to think about, we, we read about it in history, we see it in movies, it's sometimes portrayed like on the stage in theater, um, you may have even done it yourself in a situation that you were in, but we, we read about times when there's a group of people and they're faced with some kind of decision that they have to make, and there's usually a right or a wrong decision there, and someone, the leader, uh, the leader of the group draws a line in the sand and says, whoever's with me, come and join me. Um, and I was reading about uh, a situation in history that there's been portrayed this idea that this, this was done and uh, um, everybody but one person in the group decided to join him and they knew that they were probably going to die. And then I read later that there's there's some question about whether that really did happen, but it probably was inspired by an event that happened like a f about six months prior to that in a similar situation where they do know for sure that the person did it. But as I was reading about it, I was it, it's interesting to see when, when that line is drawn, you make a decision whether or not you're going to put your action where your, your words are or you decide this thing that I have held as a strong belief, is it's now time to actually put it into action even if my life might be in danger because this is the right thing to do. And that kind of a situation um, is something that we don't necessarily see a literal line that is drawn in the sand, but we do see in scripture times when people are faced with, here's the situation, there is a right and there's a wrong. Going with the right might be dangerous to me, but standing with God is the right thing to do, and so I'm going to do it. And we see that in the text today with Gideon. Um, we see two groups of people that we're going to look at today, and and they, they both are... They both are people who are faced with the same situation because the Israelites are at war with Midian, but we see two different responses. And so I want to look at those. I want to focus more on the, on the second, well, the majority of the, the text is going to be covered in the second point, but I do want to look at the other group of people. So one through three is going to talk about the Ephraimites and, and then four through 17, we're going to see Gideon's interaction with some other Israelites. And, and we're going to look at the differences and we're going to talk about our own personal lives and the lines in the sand that we might face on a daily basis um, or a regular basis, at least. So if you're in Judges chapter 8, we're going to read through verses 1 to 17. And if you're able to stand, would you please stand to honor God as we read his word? So just to remind you of the context here, Gideon has... The, last week, the text we looked at was where they were surrounding the camp of the Midianites. And remember, 
it's been described, their, their army's been described as like unable to be counted. So there's this huge army, but they surround the, the Israelites surround them. They break the jars so the torches are exposed. They blow the horns. They give the war cry. And they don't even have to do anything because God brings confusion. And the Midianites start turning on each other and killing each other. And then they start fleeing. And then there's a pursuit. So let's look at verses 1 to 17 now in chapter 8. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. But he answered them, What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted, yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Sukkoth, Give my troops some bread. They're worn out, and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there he went up to Peniel, and made the same request to them, but they answered as the men of Succoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, When I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Now, Zeba and Zamuna were in Karkor, with a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Noba and Jagbeha and attacked the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zamuna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Harris. He caught a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and the young man wrote down for them the names of the 77 officials of Succoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Succoth, Here are Zeba and Zamuna, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zamuna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Succoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this text, there is much here. There's much that we could cover. We can't cover every angle that we could take to, to teach on this text. Um, so I pray that, pray that as we work through it, that you would teach us, that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our minds not only to the things we're going to cover, but maybe to those other things that we can't get to. And Father, more than anything, let us be people with a resolve to stand with you um, in our day-in and day-out battles that we face. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So the text, I said, lays out a contrast between Israelites who are zealous for the things of the Lord and those who are neutral, those who try to remain neutral, which I've already stated numerous times, neutrality is in reality standing in opposition to God. So we're going to see people who are zealous for the things of God and people who in their attempt to be neutral are actually standing in opposition to God. So the first point is uh, we're going to talk about the zealous ones, verses 1 to 3. So after Gideon surprises the camp at night and God does the things that he does, he causes them to kill each other, some of them to kill each other, they flee uh, the camp, and Gideon starts to pursue them. He comes in contact with the men of Ephraim, and, and Ephraim was upset with him. So Ephraim was a tribe that wanted they always wanted to be in the action whenever it was present. Um, the people of Ephraim, you might remember, as we've gone through Judges, they, they were ones that helped Ehud when he was judge and delivering God's people. They also helped Barak um, when Deborah was a judge and Barak was leading the army. They helped him when he was delivering God's people from a, an oppressor. And apparently, they, were, they, they felt slighted that Gideon didn't ask them for their assistance. So let me give you just a little bit of Israelite history here. We're going to go back to the time of um, we're going to go back to the time of Jacob and and the tw- his twelve sons. So the twelve tribes of Israel were no different than any other family. Um, they're a family, um, all descendants um, of uh, they're all brothers, descendants of one man. And like all families, they, there were strong bonds in some, between some of them, and there was tension between some of them. And like all families, there was not only conflict among siblings, but there was ten- tension sometimes between the, the sons, the children, and the father. These 12 sons of Jacob were the, the family heads and as they descended from Jacob, they were all Jacob's children, they came from four different mothers. Um, so Jacob had technically two wives and two concubines, but basically four wives. Um, and so they were all Jacob's sons, but they had different mothers that they came from. Now Joseph was one of those 12. But Joseph doesn't get a tribe named after him. Instead, his tribe is divided into half, the two half-tribes of, um, of Ephraim and Manasseh, named after his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. These two were brothers, sons of Joseph and his wife Asenath, who was an Egyptian. He was, uh, when Joseph be- was raised to second in command under Pharaoh to to take over managing all the food during the famine uh, in the years of plenty before the famine hit I mean um, when he when he rose to second in command uh, he was given an Egyptian wife and there 
um, the two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, were raised by Joseph and Asenath. They were raised in a different culture than the other 11 tribes. So the other 11 tribes are still back in the land of Israel, where it was going to become the land of Israel. Uh, it's Canaan at the time. They're still back there with their father, Jacob. But Joseph, you remember, had been sold into slavery. And so Joseph, at the age of 17, was sold into slavery. And then um, after some time, at least a couple years, but we don't know the exact timing, he was raised to power because God gave him an, inter an interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. So from that point on, they have these two kids, Manasseh and, and Ephraim, and those boys are raised in Egyptian culture, which is different than the other 11 tribes and their families. They were born and raised uh, for, for at least a part of their life there among the Egyptian culture by an Egyptian mother and by a father who lived all but 17 years of his life in Egypt and had become very much a part of that culture because he was second-in-command Pharaoh. So I've wondered before, like that's a, that's a, those are completely different, those cultures. I've wondered before when, when Jacob and his sons in the land of Canaan come down because they discover that Joseph has been the one in charge and, and he's moving them down to survive the famine, they come down and they settle. And now the whole family is back together. I've wondered before, did Manasseh and Ephraim, as sons of Joseph, if they felt like outsiders, and maybe even their descendants, if they felt like outsiders. Um, it's just something I've wondered, because they're so vastly different, and they didn't know each other for a long time, and now they're thrown together as a family. Um, so I've, I've just wondered if the other tribes and their children and their grandchildren who have grown up together and worked together and traveled together, and they go through the good and the bad together, um, I've wondered if they had a closer bond and Joseph who is practically Egyptian in culture and his Egyptian wife and his Egyptian children when they joined the family uh, I just wondered if they felt like different if they didn't quite belong and I say all of that to say this I would think in that in that situation whether whether or not they felt welcomed or they felt a part of the family but just the fact that there is the the obvious difference between the cultures. Um, I would think that Ephraim and Manasseh would have a, ha would have a really strong bond. Um, when I talk to people who have children that, maybe they have a couple children and then like 15 years later they end up having a couple more children, so it's like two separate families. I've talked to them before and, and these two are always close and these two are always close and they don't always feel like they're close together. Or um, I knew one family who they were always on the move, so there was never a settling, and there was never roots put down. And so the two, the brother and the sister, were best friends because that's they were the only ones that they had. And so I would think that this vast difference would make a close bond between Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, I am going into all of that. Because Gideon is from Manasseh. And his tribe is his tribe was from the tri or his family is from the tribe of Manasseh, and Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, were the ones who felt like he had slighted them. So when they when they confronted him about that, Gideon had to make a decision, and he decided to do what he could to maintain a strong 
and healthy relationship with the people of Ephraim. I mean, after all, they are closely related. So rather than argue with them, he took a Proverbs 15:1 approach that says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. He was trying to he was trying to maintain a healthy relationship here and not bring about tension um, not stir up their wrath against him and i don't i don't know if there was already tension brewing between ephraim and manasseh yet but not long after this time uh, the time of gideon and we'll get there in judges 12 there's a civil war that breaks out between those two tribes and so there could have been tension already building i don't know but gideon perhaps used a humble approach and a gentle answer uh, an answer that praised god for what he accomplished through ephraim so that for the time being at least maybe avoided civil war but ephraim are this is a group of people who are zealous for the things of the lord and they were upset that Gideon didn't bring them along for the battle. They trusted that God would deliver them. They wanted to be a part of it. They'd already been a part of it in a couple of other situations where God was delivering his people out of the hand of an oppressor, and they were angry that they didn't get to be a part of this one. Those are the zealous ones. Point number two is the neutral one. The neutral one. So Gideon and his men, they continue to pursue what is left of this decimated army. Uh, the Midianites and their allies, they, they were at one time uh, seemed unable to be counted. But scripture tells us that they started off with 135,000 men. Gideon had an army of what? 300, right? Going up against an army of 135,000 men. That's an enormous amount of men. But after what God had done in their camp, when they turned on each other, and after what he'd done out in the land as they were fleeing, the Midianites and their, and their allies numbered only 15,000 people. Only 15,000 people. I say 135,000 men because we know that we know the number of dead. The, the, the text tells us that 120,000 were slain. There could have been more that just fled and, and, and left. But they're left with only 15,000. Now that's still a big difference between 15,000 and 300 men. But can you imagine the morale of the Midianite army going from at least 135,000 men to only 15? And I don't have to explain to you how low morale can take even the greatest army and make them make bad decisions. Um, they don't have the will to fight, and it turns out that a, a ragtag army that's smaller and really not experienced can still overpower them. So there's 15,000 men left. But Gideon's men, now I, 
it says that they it says that they pursued them and they got to um, Succoth. That is 40 miles from where they started. So they're hungry, they're thirsty, they need nourishment, and they've marched for 40 miles to pursue this army. So it's not unreasonable for him to ask the people of Succoth or the people of Peniel for food. I mean, these were Israelite communities, so it's not even like it was a Canaanite community and he was asking them to be merciful to them. These were brothers and sisters of these, uh, in these communities, and he was asking them to, to help with nourishing his, fill, filling the stomachs of his soldiers. Um, I'm not totally sure where, uh, like what tribe Peniel came from, but Succoth came from the tribe of Gad. And so, brother, you know, brother and sister Israelites here. The leaders of Succoth denied Gideon's request. So Gideon then pronounced a judgment that would come as a result. And then he moved his men to Peniel, which is another six miles. So now they've marched for 46 miles in desperate need of nourishment. And the people of Peniel also deny his request. And so he pronounces another judgment that will come upon them after God has accomplished everything through him with Midian. And it was bad enough that they wouldn't help out the brothers who were fighting on their behalf to deliver them from the, from the hand of the Midianites and their oppression. But their response was also sarcastic. I mean, like, if you look at their response, Gideon asks them, he says um, in verse five. He says, give my troops some bread. They're worn out, and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And listen to the response. This is the, this is the people of Succoth, when the very first one. When he, the text tells us that the, the people from Peniel responded the same way. So, but listen to the sarcasm. Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? So it's not only that are they denying it, are they not doing, like, they're not concerned about the things of God. They're not concerned about the things that God wants them to be concerned about. They're not playing on God's team, but they're also being sarcastic and almost mocking Gideon and his army. So that was Succoth. He moves on to Peniel. Peniel. Uh, Peniel is a pretty important city, just to give you a little bit of background on it. Pretty important city. It was the place where Jacob wrestled with God. If you remember Jacob wrestling with God all night long? And um, it's, uh, the text tells us that um, he, he endured. He was, he was able to, to wrestle with God and was not overcome. And that's where God touched his hip and caused him to have a limp for the rest of his life. That it's, it's in the city of Peniel. In fact, Jacob is the one who named it that because Peniel means face of God, and Jacob called that place Peniel because he saw God face to face there. So it's a pretty important city in terms of Israelite history. It was also, it must have been some, it must have been an important city um, in terms of commercial uh, transactions and, and maybe religious activity and that kind of stuff because they have a fortified 
they've got things that are fortifying the city. They've got this tower that especially would have probably stood out as you approach the city. And so um, that's, Gideon says for their response, he's gonna come back when he's done and he's gonna tear down the tower because they refused to help him. All right, so here's the situation with these two people. The people of Succoth and the people of Peniel are attempting to remain neutral. They're, they're Israelites, God's people need that God's chosen leader has asked them for, to fulfill. They're, here's what, they're trying to play neutral, and they're pr- trying to play neutral because they're afraid. And I, I just want to pause there because fear frequently causes us to play neutral. They're afraid that if Gideon is unsuccessful, that they will still be under the rule of Midian. And if they've given aid to Gideon and his men, and then Gideon's army fails to conquer Midian, Midian then would retaliate against Succoth and Peniel. Neutrality in our life is often driven by fear. And I think Gideon's response is indicative of what he thinks about people standing on neutral ground. I think his response is indicative of what God thinks about people standing on neutral ground. Because God is not neutral. And because God's not neutral, we can't remain neutral. So Gideon's battle is a physical battle. But here's the thing. Physical battles either also have a spiritual battle that's going on at the same time or has the potential for a spiritual battle to develop. Gideon waged war on an oppressor who was cursing the descendants of Abraham. We talked in Sunday school about the promise to Abraham. Anybody who blesses you, I'll bless. Anybody who curses you, I'll curse. And so we know that to curse God's people is to wage spiritual warfare on God. And so your spiritual battles that you deal with day in and day out, they might be purely spiritual. They might be temptations. They might be strongholds in your life or something like that. But they may, they may also be a physical battle that you're dealing with. Like the most literal, tra- like, um, counterpart would be literal war as opposed to spiritual war. You might be battling illness. You might have some physical thing that is just a, a battle that you deal with in your life, but then Satan uses those things to engage you in a spiritual battle. I deal with anxiety. I've dealt with it since college. And I've battled spiritual warfare that Satan has engaged through the fact that I've got a weakness in my life with my anxiety. And so for since I, well, since I was about 20, probably, so 24 years of my life, 
God has grown me and matured me and developed in me the things that I need to do to be able to manage it. But my anxiety has frequently been the battleground that Satan engages me spiritually on. So for you, whatever it is that whatever spiritual battles you're facing or physical battles, whatever it might be, let's 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 use physical. You're suffering with an illness. The question is, how do you respond to that? Do you act and live in a way that is still glorifying to God? Maybe you have a relationship that's falling apart. And so the question then is, how do you act and live in a way that is glorifying to God? Because Satan is going to take everything that you struggle with, whether it's physical or not. He's going to take everything that you struggle with, and he's going to turn it into a spiritual battle. He's going to attack you, and you're going to be facing spiritual warfare, perhaps in ways that you weren't expecting. Just like the people of Stuttoth and Peniel, who were not able to remain neutral. They tried to, but they weren't able to. And they weren't able to because when God made Gideon successful, then Gideon went back and punished them for it. But just as they weren't able to remain neutral in the physical battle, you and I are not able to remain neutral in spiritual warfare either. So, there is, God, God does this frequently. I'll, I'll wrap up here. God does this frequently. There's frequently a line drawn in the sand. Now, God is a merciful God, and when we fail, and, and we're weak, and we're fearful, and that kind of thing, it's not that he rejects us. It's not that he kicks us out. He, he brings us in, and he wants, to, he wants to restore us, and he wants to uh, encourage us. He has compassion on us, but there is a line that is constantly drawn in the sand in our lives. And God is on one side, and he's saying, every day when you wake up, you have a decision. Am I going to walk with him on this side today, or am I going to walk on this side and live my own life in rejection of him? Or am I going to try to straddle the line and play neutrality, which in reality is standing in opposition to him? And so there's always, every day you wake up, there's a line in the sand that you need to remember that God has drawn, and he's on one side. He draws it in Gideon's situation here with the people of Ephraim and Succoth and Peniel. And he draws it, spiritually speaking, in our lives every day. And every day we have to decide on which side of that line will I stand today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, that there were faithful ones the Ephraimites, they didn't fight, but they were upset because they wanted to, because they wanted to be zealous for the things that were of God, the things that you were doing, being a part of that. Thank you for the example of what we shouldn't do, what we should not do with the people of Succoth and Peniel. It's just a reminder that every single day when we wake up, we face physical and spiritual battles.
Satan has tried to convince people that he's not real, and if that's the case, then there is no spiritual warfare. But there is spiritual warfare because he is real. There is spiritual warfare every day that he is launching and, and engaging in our lives. And every day we have to decide we're going to walk with you. We're going to stand with you. We're going we're to be at your side fighting on your team. So let us not be lax in this. Let us not let us not lose sight of the fact that there's spiritual warfare because sometimes it's subtle and so it's easy to then forget about it. Let our guard down. So let us do what scripture commands us to guard our life and our doctrine closely and to walk with you in intimacy. In Jesus' name.